0: Before the episode, I want to share a quick word from sponsors of Think Like an Owner. The first is Live Oak Bank. Live Oak Bank is a seasoned SBA lender focused on search funds, independent sponsors, private equity firms, and individuals looking to acquire small companies. Live Oak has closed billions of dollars in SBA financing and is actively looking to help more small company investors across the country. If you are in the process of acquiring a company or thinking about starting a search, contact Lisa Forrest or Heather Anderson directly to start a conversation or go to LiveoakBank.com think. The second is Hood and Strong. Hood and Strong is a CPA firm with a long history of working with search funds and private equity firms on diligence, assurance, tax services, and more. Hood and Strong is highly skilled in working with search funds, providing quality of earnings and due diligence services during the search, along with assurance and tax services post-acquisition. They offer a unique way to approach acquisition diligence and manage costs effectively. To learn more about how Hood and Strong can help your search, Acquisition and beyond, please email one of their partners, Jerry Joe, at JZHOU at hoodstrong.com. The third is Oberly Risk Strategies. Oberly is the leading specialty insurance brokerage catering to search funds and the broader ETA community, providing complimentary due diligence assessments of the target company's commercial insurance and employee benefits programs. Over the past decade, August Velker and his team have engaged with hundreds of searchers to provide due diligence and ultimately place the most competitive insurance program at closing. Given August's experience as a searcher himself, he and his team understand all that goes into buying a business and pride themselves on making the insurance portion of closing seamless and hassle-free. If you are under LOI, please reach out to August to learn more about how Oberly can help with insurance due diligence at oberly riskcom or reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly riskcom And now to the episode. Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner. This show seeks out conversations with business owners and private investors to learn how to acquire and run small companies with a special focus on search funds, micro-private equity, and small company operations. You can learn more at alexbridgman.com slash podcast and follow me on Twitter at a e Bridgman. And if you like the show, please leave a review and tell a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I'm also the founder of The Operator's Handbook, a print publication where small company operators share their insights and ideas for building more effective and profitable companies. Articles focus on process improvement, sales, hiring and training, managing culture, and all responsibilities within operating a small company. If you run a small business and are looking for new ways to grow and improve, subscribe today and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better at TheOperatorsHandbook.com. My guest is Brandon Lafridge. Brandon lives in Kansas City and owns a property management company, North Terrace, and a furniture and home interior store, Nell Hills, along with a growing real estate portfolio. This is the first episode in the podcast where we discuss how real estate overlaps with owning small companies, something I hadn't spent much time thinking about until meeting Brandon. Those on Twitter will recognize Brandon as he has been a key contributor to SMB Twitter, perhaps most notably from a thread he did on what he believes is the most certain path to building a high net worth that I'll link to in the show notes. In addition to real estate and Twitter, we talk about using SBA loans to buy small companies, what drives key employees, and why Brandon moved away from online-based businesses towards property management, home goods, and real estate. Thanks, Brandon, for joining us. I've been excited to have you since we chatted nearly two years ago, and now you've been on Twitter for a little while. I've loved following you, and I want to hear a little bit about that specifically, but also just your background and how you got here and what you've been using Twitter for.
1: It's funny how it shows that when you join Twitter, and I think I joined in 2007 or 2008, so a long time ago, but has totally just been an RSS feed for about 11 and a half of those 12 years. And then I think like many people, when sort of fun networking stuff dried up due to COVID, I got a little more active and happened to be personal friends with a couple of Twitter gurus in the SMB space, I guess you could say, and just had some fun interactions with them. And then one particular thread that just went viral in June or July, I don't remember exactly when it was.
0: Was that the thread about the path to building wealth through buying small companies.
1: Yeah. And so now my persona is the guy that's just like zero virtue signaling. Let's just make money. (laughs) So I'm embracing that on Twitter and probably seem like a lot more of like a money focused jerk than I think I really am. But I'm rolling with it.
0: What inspired it? What kind of led up to that tweet? And then just the journey you've had so far?
1: I guess if I start At the beginning of my sort of entrepreneurial journey, if you want to hear that, I've always kind of been a little entrepreneurial, did various little schemes in high school, never anything great, though. A lot of people have the story of their eBay business that did millions of dollars in revenue or something like that, never quite had that traction. It was always sort of shiny object syndrome, try something maybe get a little bit of success. And then, of course, I found the thing that was going to be 10 times bigger and I had to jump to that. So there was a glimmer of some entrepreneurship interest, I guess, in high school, but never much success. And I went to college at the University of Missouri and I actually found a job through Craigslist. It's an ironic start to what later became a pretty good Big relationship, defining relationship, really, in my life. I was working for a startup in Columbia, Missouri that did basically what Airbnb does now, except there was definitely no Airbnb at that time. This was 2006. VRBO was actually pretty big and it was called VRBO at that time, not Verbo, as they've changed it to today. And a couple of guys had started a vacation rentals listing website. After poking around VRBO and seeing that there's like a million listings on here that are paying three hundred dollars per year just to be listed on this website, and it's funny. Before we jumped on the call, we were talking about what's a perfect business, and I was telling you I was struggling to think of a perfect business. Old Verbo might have been the perfect business, literally just a directory that was three or four hundred dollars per listing per year, and that's all they did. It was pretty amazing. So anyway. I started working for a company that was building out niche vacation rental sites. So they were targeting like coast rentals, slope rentals was one of the names of the niche websites and lake rentals, which was the big one because the University of Missouri is pretty close to the Lake of the Ozarks. And a couple of the guys that were involved with that website owned some lake vacation rentals. And that was kind of how they got exposed to that world from the start. So I was hired there as just kind of like a online marketing jack-of-all-trades, I guess. At the time, SEO was a lot easier than it is now. And you could go and if you wanted to rank for Lake of the Ozarks vacation rentals, it was really just a matter of getting a few links to a page that had a lot of content about that. And it was pretty easy to game. I say game, you weren't always gaming it. I mean, you could be doing things sort of the... White hat way, but still, you're sort of trying to trick Google a little bit. So, we had a team of people that would go out and get links and mentions like every, I probably emailed like every realtor across the country a hundred times saying, Hey, can we get a link on your website? Even though you're in Montana, can we do a little article about how great it is to visit the Lake of the Ozarks or something? So, that business, it ended up being kind of a moderate success, small. I guess probably wouldn't even call it a moderate success. It was sort of a flop. It was hard to grow. And it was sold ultimately to the Weather Channel. Strangely enough, they kind of wanted to own the businesses that advertise on their website And this is all in college, by the way. That was probably the first year, year and a half of college. From that, I moved on to a different business that these guys owned. It was a lead generation business that generated mortgage leads. So kind of just doing the same things, except instead of trying to rank on Google for like the Ozarks vacation rental, you're trying to rank for VA loans, FHA loans, mortgage calculator, those sorts of things. And the scope of what I did expanded a little bit beyond just cold emailing day in and day out to having a little more direct responsibility for a few of the properties that they owned, internet properties that they owned. And by the end of school, I was running one website that was actually kind of not core to the main kind of niche that they focused on, which was VA loans. And the same guys that owned this business, they owned another a mortgage company, and they actually generated leads and sold them to themselves, basically. And the mortgage company itself was highly successful. And I worked there for a short time. And the guy, Nate, who founded the vacation rentals business was the CMO eventually of the mortgage company. And we ended up leaving that business, which was called Veterans United, to start sort of an agency, an online marketing agency, and this is like right at the time that I graduated college. But our premise was that we didn't want to do fee for service. We wanted to do equity for service, I guess you could call it. So we would partner with somebody and as opposed to getting a $5,000 a month retainer, if we hit certain metrics, we actually got equity in their business or revenue share or something that had greater upside. I think a lot of people have tried that, and I think most people come to the same conclusion that we came to, where you basically get treated like an agency and you don't get paid, so it really kind of stinks. It's super difficult to do well, and it's maybe one out of 10 deals that you could really truly come into with the purest of intentions actually work out. It's very difficult. So... That business actually ended up pivoting into what we set out not to be, which was an online marketing consulting business, but we kind of had to keep the lights on. And we grew that to, I think about 20, 25 people and a couple million dollars a year in revenue. And this was about two years after college and found ourselves in a position where we actually hired someone to run that business. And I only spent probably half my time working in that business because a lesson that I had learned, although I certainly need to relearn now, now that I've bought some businesses, is from those guys that I worked for in college. They were always very quick to replace themselves as sort of the day-to-day frontline management. And so we saw them do that and thought it would be the right thing to do. And it was great. We had moved to California and had our little Business kind of frat house on the beach, basically. Because, of course, we hired everybody like us, which is not my MO now. But at the time, it was kind of fun and it was great to have a business that was doing well and didn't have to work super hard in it. But we were never like fully invested in that business ourselves because it always felt sort of like I was alluding to before a little gimmicky and a little bit like it could go away any moment. Google could kind of change their policies and our supposed niche of being good at getting things to rank well on Google could be gone basically. So we were always, my partner and I at that time, we're always looking for the next thing and didn't happen upon anything for a while. We ended up running that business for three or four years and we sold it to one of our clients. And in retrospect, it's amazing because it's now been like six or seven years ago that we sold it. It, has done well ever since there was no reason to sell it we weren't even working in the business and we could totally still own it today and not work on it so it was a missed opportunity but a lesson too of kind of look at the bigger picture and weigh the risks and don't be afraid to i guess i don't know what the real lesson is there's just an early exit's not always a smart thing but as time progressed in that business, and we were definitely kind of less and less committed to it. I spent time kind of looking for other opportunities. And one of the things that I happened upon was potentially buying a business. And through that journey, I met Tim Ludwig, who was one of those guys that's now big on Twitter, like we were talking about at the beginning of this conversation. And actually, Brent Shore and I and my partner, Nate, and a bunch of other kind of people that were involved in Columbia, Missouri's entrepreneurial scene. I wasn't that involved when I lived there, but had stayed in touch. And of course, he's gone on to kind of be the godfather of this world, even like being online, I guess. Not like he created this world, but has kind of been the content marketing guy that's been out there a lot. So he definitely helped foster the interest in me a lot as well. And after we sold our business, our marketing agency, which was called Spread Effect, we ended up joining a small, very, very entrepreneurial kind of duct tape together, almost private equity firm out of Canada and had the opportunity to buy a couple of businesses for them in the United States. They wanted to kind of set up shop and it really made no sense to partner with us from their perspective, other than the fact that we were willing to roll up our sleeves and we were definitely like operators, not financial engineering types. We certainly didn't have that pedigree. And frankly, I probably couldn't have even modeled a deal like I can now at that time. But it was awesome experience. We bought two businesses for them. And we were there for a couple of years. I realized I had a little more fun running the companies than I did like pursuing deals. And they were very deal oriented. So that led me to the conclusion of sort of wanting to do a search fund or something similar to a search fund and kind of at that time i got very deep into learning about sba loans and how i could potentially do it without raising a true search fund because i didn't i mean i didn't go to an ivy league school get an mba all that sort of classic stuff and frankly it was more appealing to me to buy a business that was say five times smaller and i owned 100 percent as opposed to five times larger and I own 20% or something like that. Throughout that period of doing the online business, I had been buying rentals in Kansas City, Missouri, where I'm from, and had sort of been exposed to the world of property management a little bit and landed on the crazy idea that I should buy a property management company because it would allow me to focus full-time on real estate stuff. And it's a recurring revenue service business a lot of the dynamics that you kind of look for in search funds. And it just so happened that when I reached out to I think I was either one for one or one for two, because there's literally only two companies that would fit the profile of what I wanted in Kansas City of a scattered site property management company that works in the areas where I kinda wanna spend my time and like to invest kind of a cooler hipster type area. I don't think I even emailed the second one. I just emailed one. And I caught his attention. It was kind of your typical, like, would you ever consider selling your business type thing? And it took a number of years to develop after the initial email, but I just lucked out and found somebody who was kind of interested in moving on, had been doing it for 15 years. And I think he saw in me the fact that this is a very niche business that requires a personal interest beyond just like, hey, I want to own a business, like you kind of need to know, okay, who are the players that own properties in this area and those sorts of things that a business broker can't just go out and find that person. So I'm not saying I'm special, but I just I came with that interest and knowledge and I didn't have to develop it, which made it more likely, I think, that I would perform. So that's North Terrace Property Management, the business that I run now. The theory with that business was that it would sort of be a hub, I guess. And then I could go out and syndicate multifamily deals when it made sense, which it hasn't made sense too much for the last year or two, with prices just being crazy and value-add multifamily is super expensive right now. But I don't have to do deals because I have the operating business and I can kind of just sit on it and wait for opportunities. But since I bought the business, I have been able to buy a uh, couple hundred apartment units between deals that I've sponsored myself and then kind of co-investing with some clients and things like that. So the theory has definitely borne out. And then separate from that, very, very long winded background here, but separate from that about two years ago now. So just for reference, it's the end of 2020. I bought North Terrace almost four years ago, almost two years ago. I was talking to a business broker here in Kansas City, and I had inquired on an HVAC business because I thought, hey, this is an interesting niche, as a lot of people do in kind of the search fund world right now, for a number of reasons. It's kind of Amazon-proof. It's a recurring need. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of the customer experience, et cetera. And in some ways, it's synergistic to the property management business. We could kind of leverage the same bookkeeping and answering the phone and that sort of thing. Well, it turned out the business that I inquired on was the teaser just wasn't specific, which of course it's never specific. And it was like kind of an industrial cooling tower, very hardcore type business that was not at all synergistic with what I was doing. and was really more of like an engineering firm. So not relevant, not something that I would have any business getting involved in. But in talking to the broker, he asked if I would ever want to buy another business. And I said, Yeah, I would love to. Kind of dream of building a little portfolio of businesses here in Kansas City. And I would be interested in something that is what I thought I was calling about, which is something that's synergistic with my real estate business or something that's just like a local institution. Every kind of metro has. The little chain of coffee shops that everyone loves just because they're local and it's kind of legendary. Or what we bought, which is a local home goods store. It was kind of like the Martha Stewart of the Midwest is a good way to say it. The business that we ended up buying. Everybody in Kansas City knows this business. It's called Nell Hills. The lady founded it in a small town that was about 45 minutes outside of the city. And had since moved it into Kansas City, but has just an incredible reputation, very much wrapped up with the founder prior to my wife and I buying it with a, a kind of a group of friends and family. And I think for whatever reason what I said just kind of pinged enough on his radar, he was about to bring this business to market. And we were lucky enough to kind of catch it before it went out. Although I'm not a hundred percent that it wouldn't have been an opportunity, even if it was more widely marketed, because it was kind of a niche size where it wasn't super small. And you really needed a sort of a personality to plug in for the founder, which my wife just happened to have, fortunately. So yeah, that's where we're at today. I run my business, she runs her business. We're definitely business partners and kind of look at it as all as one thing. But yeah, that's bringing us to present, I guess.
0: Yeah, that sounds almost like a Small, like Nebraska furniture mart type business?
1: Yes, she would take offense to that illusion. Sorry, Warren Buffett. And Patrick Mahomes, of course, just can do no wrong in Kansas City. But if you ask my wife, she's not a fan because he is endorsed by Nebraska furniture mart. And every time I have the Chiefs game on, it's a hundred times Patrick Mahomes and his fiance every commercial break talking about how amazing. Nebraska Furniture Mart is, but it's sort of Nebraska Furniture Mart. You might spend a thousand dollars on a sofa. My wife's business, it's custom and it's like $3,000. So sort of a different audience. So I say that in jest.
0: Yeah. How big is the store?
1: So it's about the physical footprint is 16,000 square feet, which is pretty good size. I mean, compared to Nebraska Furniture Mart, it's probably the size of, I don't know, the refrigerator section or something, but it's really like packed to the gills. The aesthetic is very much kind of traditional, like over-the-top maximalist is what she jokingly calls it. But just for like general scale on the business, I think there's 45 or 50 employees. So it's not a small shop. It's very like active and it has an interesting niche where it doesn't feel like a furniture store. It feels more like you're going kind of to someone's home and they change it out basically every week. So there's a lot of regulars that just go in every week or two or month or whatever frequency because it's just something fun to do. It's not like a static sort of furniture store per se.
0: Interesting. What's the business model like for a furniture store? I'd imagine it's if it's selling hardware goods and it's retail, it's probably not as profitable as maybe your property management or other businesses might be. But maybe that's offset a little bit by how popular it is in the city. And you know that while it may not be as high margin, it's going to be around for a long time. But of course, I'm making assumptions here in the question, so I could be wrong.
1: It's interesting. It's just they're basically totally opposite business models. So my business has essentially no inventory. We have receivables. We perform a service, say, on the first day of the month for a property that we manage. We're going to get reimbursed for what we've laid out there. At best, 45 days later, sometimes way longer. You never know. So that's my business. Her business is you buy a ton of inventory, like a lot of inventory. And there are zero receivables because it's just, it's not all cash and carry, but you either buy kind of little trinkets that are on the floor or you might put a deposit down. So in my $3,000 sofa example, you'd put $1,500 down. Then Nell Hills goes and orders that piece from a manufacturer and gets it made to the customer's specs. And then the good comes in a couple of months later, a little bit delayed right now, I guess, due to COVID, but usually about two months later, customer gets a call and you pay for the balance. So it's an interesting working capital situation where it's very like split. It's either really amazing with like sort of no upfront working capital or just inventory that you're hoping you sell. Now they're good at it. I mean, that's really simplifying it, but very different dynamics. I mean, her business is very, very well known and people do just kind of, I mean, they do marketing, but people just show up. I mean, 100, 200 people a day just show up every day. It's kind of jokingly said, it's like a little theme park and the sort of turnstile keeps going and they do things to make the turnstile spin a little bit more, but they could stop marketing and it would continue for a long time.
0: It's interesting that your past businesses were all online and digital and there's no inventory or parts to worry about. And it seems like you've done the complete opposite with your businesses in Kansas City. Is there Anything to that? Did you look for online businesses while you were looking for this property management business or what caused that shift to more physical type companies?
1: Online businesses and software businesses are obviously they're sort of the perfect business model when they work. But I think I'm self-aware enough to know that I'm not that smart and I'm afraid of how many smart people are going after those things. And I just know that it's sort of a race to the bottom in a way you've seen it a million times somebody comes up with a tactic that works in online marketing and then it's always hundred percent of the time it's a kind of a flash in the pan because that thing is going to either it's something that's slightly shady or it's just something that if you just do more of it you can win basically i don't want to be competing in places where there's going to always be somebody smarter than me going after that and if it's online. The nature of it is people all over the world are going to probably be going after it versus there's not people from all over the world raising their hands saying, I want to start a property management company in Kansas City and they shouldn't be. But so I think it was just 10 years of having that feeling of, oh, my gosh, I just want the opposite of something that can go away overnight and something that draws in naturally just tons and tons of competition. And so it's sort of, I guess, the competitive moat is signing up for things that other people don't want to do.
0: Yeah, certainly. And you've talked about using SBA loans. Did you use SBA loans for these two businesses?
1: Yes. So my business that I run, we own it, just my wife and I, nobody else is involved. And for her business, we actually raised a little bit of money from friends and family. So more similar to kind of what you see in the search fund world when people do a self-funded search, but then raise a little bit of equity to get a deal done.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the experience applying for an SBA loan and going through that process for these two companies?
1: The first one that I did, my business, North Terrace, I actually just did it through a big bank, Bank of the West. And it was with a, kind of the local lender at the local branch. And he was pretty good. But being in Kansas City, which is not a big market for Bank of the West, I kind of got kicked to somebody that wasn't local. And they didn't do a bad job, but it also didn't feel like it was totally their focus, which on the second deal, which I can talk about, I came to kind of see what that really looked like, a bank that specialized in it. I mean, there's probably tens of thousands of people that quote unquote do sba loans for a bank but there's an amazing difference when there's someone who really specializes in helping fund small business acquisitions through sba loans the process is not too bad to be honest you have to put together a business plan you have to put together which there's no definition on what that has to look like for the second business that we bought. It was really just like the deck that we gave to our friends and family that we're going to invest in the business. You have to do a transition plan. Of course, you have to do like a personal financial statement. And then there's a number of sort of tick off the box tax returns for the business and insurance policies and all that kind of due diligence type stuff. But it's not as bad as I think most people make it sound. There is just There's a lot of sort of CYA stuff that the banks have to get, because part of their guarantee is their documentation has to be absolutely perfect. Because the way that it's been explained to me, thankfully, I've never experienced it. But if you were to default on your SBA loan, the first thing, the bank's going to try and come after you for the money, but say that that doesn't go well. And they go to the SBA saying, hey, we need you to backstop this, come through with your guarantee for your portion of this 75%. They're going to not even look at me as the borrower first. They're going to look at all the documentation that the bank got from me at the beginning of that loan. And they're going to look for mistakes. And they're basically trying to get out of it. And I think they're almost upfront with saying that that's their MO because it instills in the bank like we're serious this has to be perfect like we're not going to say we're going to make an exception for you you're one of our favorite banks so we don't care that you did this wrong so there's just a lot of the thing that i think a lot of people get frustrated with especially they're very entrepreneurial just weird stuff like the provenance of the down payment which if you're our first business was fairly small so it wasn't that big of a deal we kind of all had that cash just sitting in a savings account but for the second business where that was significantly more money and it was a few different people, there's all this weird sort of seasoning that they need to see. And we had to prep for that like three or four months in advance. And there were still other issues like, hey, I see there was, I don't know, interest income in this checking account. We need some documentation of whether that's truly interest income or is there some other reason that there was a dollar fifty put into that account? Just bizarre, specific stuff. So there were For the like eight or nine people that put a little bit of money into that deal, there was hundreds of pages of documentation just for the down payment provenance.
0: Since they were all part of the down payment, they all had to contribute that paperwork?
1: Yes. And we did our best to like tell everyone months in advance, like, hey, you might even set up a new bank account put this in there then all we're going to have to ask for is two bank statements or whatever it was i don't remember exactly but i think it was kind of 60 days worth and i think one or two people did that nobody else did a few people like took it off of a home equity line which then it's like a whole other process so it was the 11th hour and well then by nature they or kind of by rule they have to do it right at the end because they need to see that it wasn't money laundering or whatever So they're doing that the day before close. So it's nuts.
0: That is nuts. So then is there something that the second bank you used who was more specialized, is there something that they did that made the process a little bit easier for you?
1: So I know one of your sponsors is Live Oak Bank. Byline Bank is the bank that we actually used on the second deal. And I think they're kind of right up there with Live Oak in terms of specializing in doing acquisition loans and understanding, okay, most small businesses are not going to be collateralized 100%. This is a cash flow loan, basically. So the fact that they understand that from the start is very helpful because the SBA 7A program is kind of just like a framework that banks can put things into, but they can layer their requirements to an extent on top of it. So a lot of times you might go into a bank and it says SBA loans and you could say, hey, I've heard about buying a business with an SBA loan and that banker will say, "Okay, well, what's it look like? You say, oh, the EBIT does 300,000 and I'm going to buy it for 900,000 and it has 100,000 in assets. Then that lender tells you, well, that's impossible. There is no collateral. We're not going to do that deal. That could be true sort of for that bank. I don't think they're actually supposed to explicitly say that. Because there is sort of a mandate that lack of collateral itself is not a good enough reason to deny a deal. But you'll hear answers like that versus people like Live Oak, Byline, a couple of others. I think Celtic Bank is another one on the East Coast that really have a little practice built around this. They start from like, okay, we like you as a sponsor. This business looks interesting. Let's figure out how we can get it done, not sort of, please, Mr. Banker. Will you consider my plea?
0: So then post-close, is there any interaction with the bank afterwards and keeping up to date with any additional documentation?
1: So not at all like a sort of normal, let's say you were going to a regional bank and getting a 2x EBITDA cash flow loan to recap a business or buy a business or whatever. They're going to have covenants, regular reporting fairly sort of strict rules, probably on cash distributions, that sort of thing. SBA loans do not have any covenants. There is reporting that's required, but it's very simple. I mean, and I don't think they even, they don't do anything with the information that you give them other than maybe they use it to track potential issues and maybe they report it back to the SBA. I'm sure they do that. But it's not like if you send a bad set of financials on A traditional bank loan, and now, okay, they're going to start pulling things or start sort of tightening the screws on you a little bit because they see a problem. They don't really have any power to enforce anything. This year has been interesting with the PPP program and everything else that's gone on where we have had a lot of interaction with them. But yeah, in normal times, sort of a, I think quarterly, they ask you. I think one of our businesses, they ask quarterly, and the other one, they just kind of ask annually for updated financials. Once in a while, we'll have a conversation, but it's kind of, I think it's a little bit more geared towards their just relationship building than anything. It's not holding us accountable or anything like that.
0: So using an SBA loan, what might a structure look like then?
1: You're talking about that Twitter thread that kind of went viral this summer. I don't remember the exact numbers that I put in that for my hypothetical deal and I don't think the math was as easy as I'd want to make it here on the fly. But let's say, for instance, there was a business that did a million in EBITDA and you had agreed with the owner to buy it for $5 million. With the right lender and with the right risk aptitude or right risk appetite, I should say, personally, you could actually buy that business for $5 million, put 5% down because You're actually supposed to put 10% down, although they allow the seller to contribute half of that 10%, so long as it's structured as a note that's on full standby for the entire term of the SBA loan. So it's got to be in last position. It can accrue interest, but you're not allowed to pay anything on it. So for all intents and purposes, it's a little bit of a lottery ticket for the seller, but obviously it's easy to sort of price that into the deal. In my example, I guess you'd be talking about 0.25 turns of earnings. So that's not a crazy amount to ask them to wait 10 years and a month for. And then the balance of that, so the 90% of the 5 million can be an SBA loan. Now, most people would split that up between an SBA loan and a seller note to keep the seller engaged. Maybe you can get better terms on the seller note. And then maybe you use it as sort of the where indemnification might happen if there's issues post-close or whatever, as opposed to an escrow. But you could borrow as much as $4.5 on the deal that I described. And the actual limit for an individual is $5 million dollars. Practically speaking, you could probably do as large as, I mean, you could do kind of any size, but probably a $10 million purchase with an SBA loan if you threw a seller note or some mezzanine financing with a larger equity check. But in my example of that $5 million deal, typically the SBA portion of that and the seller note are going to be amortized over like seven to 10 years rates right now, I think kind of five, six percent. And the seller notes, just whatever you negotiate. So if you do the math on that, it's pretty amazing cash flow from day one with a million caveats of anything could happen, basically. But if you've got a good, steady business that you should want to buy, it's really amazing on a spreadsheet. It doesn't always work out that way. So far, so good with our businesses. But it's a very, very serious commitment. But a very compelling one too.
0: And so when you have excess cash in North Terrace, do you try to pay down the SBA loan with that just to de-risk things a little bit? Or are you pretty comfortable just letting it ride at the normal payment schedule?
1: I don't pay that down because it's not like a line of credit where if I wanted it back, I can get it back. I don't actually have anything on any lines of credit right now. I did at one point, and I would pay that down. And that's nice, like I said, because if you need to go use that for something, you still have access. I used North Terrace sort of as a vehicle to buy an owner-occupied office building, which is kind of an interesting thing to do. I've got a business that doesn't own its real estate. That was not an SBA deal. Banks love to do owner-occupied real estate, which makes sense. It's pretty good to have your tenant and the owner kind of be the same thing. I've sort of thought about replacing the financing on that office building with a line of credit and then sweeping down our operating cash against that building line all the time. So I guess that's on the list, but it's a ways down the list right now.
0: So what are some advantages for you and with your business and the real estate when you're buying owner-occupied real estate that you are the owner and occupier of
1: certain types of vacant real estate. It's just worth a ton less simply because it's vacant. So I purchased this office building that North Terrace is in from a nonprofit. I was the third guy to make an offer on it. One was a neighboring property owner One was just kind of somebody off the street, and then there was me who would be an owner user. And I got lucky because the first two kind of brought expectations down. And then I think by the time the third person gave a number in the same range, they sort of adjusted their expectations. It also happened to be, I think, about 60 days before the end of their fiscal year, and they really wanted to get it off the books. So that was a nice little lucky break as well. But it was interesting because there was just a huge disconnect percentage wise. I think it was the building appraised for 40 or 50 percent more than I purchased it for simply because I was the appraiser appraised it based on what our occupancy cost would be. Now, it's not a super easy thing to do, at least in our area, to buy an office building and just lease it out to a third party. It's not difficult, but There's long hold times and you don't get credit for it in the same way that you would get credit for occupying it yourself when you have control of the tenant. So it's still pretty illiquid and I don't get super excited when I think about the gain on that, but it is nice in terms of enabling other things. And it actually, it turned out to be pretty critical in enabling us to kind of have a nice little bump to our personal balance sheet to get the lender on the bigger business acquisition to look at us as a bit of a better risk, even though it's not like I could turn around and just sell this building super easily. But I definitely think, I don't want to say anyone with a business should own the real estate that they're in, but it's most of the time far superior.
0: Yeah. And looking at the bigger picture now, you have two businesses, apartments and real estate. Is there a long-term aim to be in one or the other? Are you using your companies to just build a long-term real estate portfolio and you want that to be your largest holding? Or is there, do you see like a place for both companies and real estate in your portfolio over the next 20 years or so?
1: There's things that interest me about both for sure. Real estate is more scalable for like the lifestyle that I want, which is I don't wanna build a firm per se doing what we do or anything like that. I kind of enjoy it just being like my wife and I owning some businesses. So the thought of scaling, buying 10 companies or something like that is not really reasonable. Whereas buying more apartment buildings, the incremental tax on me personally is not that crazy. I mean, it's kind of, it's a little bit of an influx of work when you buy something and then you put it into the system and it's set and you don't have to work super hard on it. So that's appealing with real estate. There's also all sorts of tax benefits. And some of those are sort of permanent, I hope, tax benefits. And some of those are short-term things right now that are especially compelling with like the JOBS Act. There's some depreciation stuff that's very interesting if you're a real estate professional. So I would love to buy more real estate right now. And I think long-term, I would like to continue buying real estate. I'm not fully convinced that exactly what I do is going to be an opportunity forever. I mean, there will always be probably opportunities in multifamily, but the space that I plan, which is sort of like $5 million and under multifamily, is very, very saturated right now. And I don't think actually that limit of $5 million is a... Much higher than that's very saturated, too. It's just tough to find any interesting opportunities. So, from that perspective, it does kind of lead me in the direction of wanting to go a little bit more after either buying businesses or focusing on growing our businesses a little bit, as opposed to buying more real estate, just because that's so much more fragmented and it's not businesses don't get listed for sale and get five offers the day that they're listed for sale the way that real estate does right now. So, I'm a bit of an opportunist and open to both. And I would say my intention for the next few years is just to I want to get both businesses just dialed in perfectly so that I truly have the option to do either cuz right now I don't think I have that option. I really have to run my business and my wife has to run her business. It's not like anything's going to run itself.
0: Yeah, so how do you think about removing your- both of yourselves more and more from the businesses. So using real estate more as a lifestyle investment compared to buying a portfolio of companies, like how do you see yourself being removed over time from the day-to-day operations?
1: Well, in both businesses, we have some really key employees who probably could run the businesses without us if I'm being totally honest with myself. But I think we need to continue to empower them and then actually give that authority to run the business if it's something that they want my business having clients it's a little bit more difficult because there's sort of a personal relationship and it would be it could be a little bit shocking if I was like well I really don't work there anymore yes I own it but I don't work there just because it is so relational and it's our other client wants to buy something and you had dinner with him and that kind of a thing. But it's not to say that it's impossible. And I'm happy to do that stuff right now. So I'm not totally trying to remove myself. I'd like to just set up the option at some point.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm gonna move into some closing questions as we're bumping up on your time here. What class would you teach in college if you could teach about any subject you wanted? I
1: told you my kind of silly Twitter persona was just kind of like let's make money silliness. So I'm going to roll with that theme and say, I would have loved a class in college called how to get rich and just dissecting basically how to build wealth, creative ways that people have built wealth and super tactical stuff too. just like, how does a mortgage work? Not sort of basic personal financial concepts because there are personal finance courses, of course, at college, but slightly up the chain a little bit. I also think it'd be fun because if you titled the class How to Get Rich, I think you would instantly be like one of the most popular classes in the course catalog. So that'd be kind of fun. Just come in and instantly unseat the academic people that have kind of been trying to be popular or whatever. But I just think it'd be super fun because The main reason that we all go to college ultimately is to improve our financial future. Yet we spend so little time actually talking about that while we're there that it just seems crazy to me. And I think it'd be super fun to just drill down into very tactical kind of ideas and strategies and sort of be the anti college class.
0: Nice. How do you think you would structure it? And do you think you'd have a few guest speakers?
1: Definitely guest speakers. That was actually one of my favorite things in college. Mizzou was big on that. I'm sure every college is, but always tons of super interesting guest speakers. And you tended to be able to like go and have lunch with them or grab a beer with them if it was the kind of upper level classes later in the day. So that was always fun. So definitely good excuse to get the university to pay for the lunch, I guess. As far as how I would structure it, that's a good question. I did not think that far into this.
0: Or what would your topic areas be, like topics of focus?
1: I mean, I think sort of inciting urgency on some of these like couple of very basic things that you can do at a young age that absolutely set you up later in life. Like The one thing that I knew that I should have done that I didn't do, which I regret, is just buying like a duplex with an FHA loan when you're super young i mean you instantly have set yourself up assuming that that property doesn't just totally go to hell but if you decently manage it you got to live there for one year and then you've got call it a half a million dollar asset if it's a half a million dollar property that you're going to pay off so just some of those super tactical things even if one kid that came out of the class went and did it it'd be super fulfilling
0: excellent yeah i like that idea I'm sure you could talk a lot about real estate and how it could blend with business ownership. And to that point, that'd be a really fun class to be a part of.
1: Yeah, I actually had an opportunity to do a very mini version of this. Mizzou does, they call it a professor for a day. And they'll have recent alumni back and just anybody they want to have back. And I did that a few years ago and I actually talked about buying a business with an SBA loan. So that was my one day version of this. And it was super fun. And everybody was like, there was nobody kind of staring off in space in the back of the room. It seemed like everybody was on the edge of their seat, probably because I was like putting these are real numbers. This is really what you can do versus theory.
0: What's the belief you used to hold strongly that you changed your mind on?
1: kind of going opposite to the types of stuff I was just talking about, that money is sort of the easiest motivator and that we're all mercenaries. I absolutely used to think that kind of in my earliest businesses, and it is very, very untrue. In fact, it's not a great motivator at all, usually. I mean, people want fair compensation, but the main reason that I've had people leave businesses when it wasn't my choice is not because they went and got some big raise somewhere else. It's because they maybe were unsatisfied with some aspect of their job and I never noticed or I never asked them and I never did anything to address it. Or they didn't get a new challenge in a year or two and just weren't sort of empowered to do more. And I used to think that just sort of money could solve everything related to team morale and motivation, and it doesn't. And I know that that's probably very obvious to many people, but I came to realize that for myself and sort of our team at the same time, that you could offer me a lot more money to go do certain things, and I would absolutely not want to do them. And I'm not referring to things that are just like blatantly, you shouldn't want to do that because it's unethical or bad for some reason. I like what I do and it's exciting that it's a business that I own and there's opportunity to make a lot of money. But there are a lot of businesses that might be a good deal financially that I don't want to be involved with at all.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Matt, you step on the last podcast was talking a little bit about how the employees like your best employees often aren't motivated just by money. There's often much larger things at work. And it's interesting that you bring that up as well.
1: I didn't listen to that one, so I'm not stealing that. (laughs) I will listen to it, though. It's super interesting, and it can be very different for a lot of people. For some people, it's authority or even just like perceived authority through their job title, and other people will just laugh at that, like, oh, you can call me the king of whatever, and doesn't matter. I'm just here to do my job. So I'm trying to get much better at spending my time sort of Empowering, holding people accountable, those sorts of things, as opposed to sort of jumping in and just taking something on myself, which has been a problem in the past. And then you sort of end up with this string of half finished things, and we're not all sort of improving.
0: What's the best business you've ever seen?
1: Well, I'll say two. So I said VRBO because that kind of came into my head earlier in the conversation. Amazing business. Just anything that's like a directory like that. Man, wouldn't it be amazing to own? the Better Business Bureau or something, which I don't think is actually a for-profit business, but it's everybody knows it's kind of like a mafia type situation and it's a great little racket for them. So a directory business like that is kind of amazing. And then this isn't the best business I've ever seen, but it's a great inspiration for me. There's a group out of Colorado called Monarch Properties. And what I like about them... One, they publish a nice bit of detail on their finances and their structure and their business model on their website, and they're not like a REIT or public in any way. So that's interesting because you can dive in as an outsider a little bit. But secondly, what's interesting to me is in a space, so multifamily value add, that is so sort of built around finding a deal, which is like a terrible thing to build a business on. That's not their model. Their model is that they are owner operators and they're vertically integrated and they basically can underwrite an opportunity and they know that, okay, if expenses and revenue are X and Y, that they can decrease expenses by 5% and increase revenue by 5% and that hits their marks versus most people who are kind of trying to do something temporary that bumps a value, they have like a long-term competitive operational advantage. And it's just an amazing story that business founded in the early nineties by an accountant who I think grew fed up with seeing how all his clients were getting super rich off real estate. And he decided to put together some deals himself and then built this huge operating business around that. And it's, so they have like 60,000 units. And so very much an institutional scale, but they actually raise most of their money still from kind of mom and pop country club type investors. And I think that's pretty interesting too.
0: That is pretty interesting. Thank you so much for sharing your time today. This has been awesome. I haven't had a whole lot of real estate discussions in the past or how the two SMBs and real estate can blend together. So it's been fun hearing that from you.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I love what you're doing.
0: (laughs) Thanks, Brandon. We'll talk to you soon.
1: All right, thanks. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, LightBook Bank, Hood & Strong, and Oberly for their support. For full episode transcripts and more information, please visit our website at alexbridgman.com podcast. And if you want to learn more about The Operator's Handbook, please visit us at theoperatorshandbook.com and join your peers in the endless pursuit of better.